You're listening to You Might Have a Point. In each episode, I bring on a different guest to discuss politics and related topics. The point of the show is to get to know more about what the guest believes and why, which is why we primarily discuss their own views and not my own. I believe in learning about a broad range of viewpoints so that even when you disagree with someone about a lot of things, you can still sometimes say, you know, you might have a point. You can find out more at youmighthaveapoint.com. I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast today two guests. The first is Luke Phillips. Luke is a Publius is the Publius Fellow for Public Discourse at Braver Angels. Welcome, Luke. Thanks. Glad to be here. Honored to be on the show. The second is Paul Kuhn. He is a Roundtables Program Manager at the Center for Open Data Enterprise and also volunteers with Braver Angels. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Okay, so the way I'd like to do this is... Uh, interview you both a little bit separately and uh, also together. So Paul, I'm going to start with you. Um, I'm curious if you could tell me just a little bit about what uh, your job entails at the Center for Open Data Enterprise. Yeah, so I work as the Roundtables Program Manager there. Um, and I basically, the, the Center for Open Data Enterprise focuses on maximizing the value of public and shared data for the public good. And we're really, really intent on basically bringing together user, data users, data providers, and having really, really highly facilitated discussions about how to improve that data use. And so a lot of my role is really just coordinating those roundtables kind of from soup to nuts, from planning, uh, doing some research, inviting folks, and then actually hosting the roundtables, which then tend to produce these. We take the kind of discussions that happen, and then we actually build out some summary reports with recommendations that are usually geared towards federal agencies, but also towards researchers, civil society members, private sector folks. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a great space for anyone who's an advocate for open data, evidence, and, and that kind of work. Awesome. So uh, as I mentioned, you also volunteer for Braver Angels. Um, how do, does that relate to your work at the open data, open data Enterprise, and if so, how? Yeah, it's a little bit separate. I mean, my work at Braver Angels uh, started, I started volunteering with Braver Angels around the time that I started working at the Center for Open Data Enterprise, okay. or, or CODE for short, let's refer to it as CODE here on out. But I, it is a little bit separate in the sense that Braver Angels is a little bit more of my interest in depolarization and kind of work on improving civil discourse. And But there is a data component, I would say, to my work at Braver Angels in that I kind of help facilitate and coordinate different folks who are working on evaluation data, research and just general data analytics. So um, I've been, I guess my mission, I would say at Braver Angels has been to find ways to scale and professionalize uh, data intake on all the programs hosted by Braver Angels to get better, a better sense of how effective the programming is being. So that's how I would kind of describe my role. Okay, great. And uh, now I was uh, looking up stuff that you had written. And uh, the one piece I found was uh, an Aereo piece, which is fitting since I actually recently had the new editor of Aereo on the podcast, Iona Italia. Um, oh, great. Yeah. And, and so I uh, really like Aereo. Uh, <laughs> um, there's, there's a theme to my podcast, which is publications like Aereo, organizations like Braver Angels. Um, so uh, your piece was uh, in on October 11th of 2020, The Courage of Moderation in an Angry America. And one of the points that you made was, I think, how you define moderation was not so much uh, policy preferences so much as the attitude that you bring to um, debate and how you participate in American political life. Is that right? Yeah, I would describe it as a 
moderation is sort of like moderating your own discourse and how you approach others, as well as I think the more extreme wings of your own side of your ideology too. Okay. Um, so when you say extreme wings of your ideology, if uh, someone is as pleasant as they could be, but advocates tripling the amount that we spend each year in the federal budget, would do you, you know, would that be considered, would you consider that not um, being sufficiently moderate because, and actually contributing to polarization because, you know, it's uh, too extreme of a view that's not going to get passed or would, would you be fine with that? Sort of. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the piece, I sort of distinguish between two kind of uh, forms of maybe polarization or extremism okay. that are taking place, right? So I think there's the ideological pole, which you do see if you're, let's hypothetically talk about Democrats or liberals, certainly the agendas that more mainstream Democrats have been espousing in the last, I don't know, 10 to 15 years have gone further to the left, right? There's no mm-hmm. doubt about this. Some of the policies that were sort of anathema back in the early 2000s. Um, be that on, you know, abolishing ICE or kind of general government oversight programs with like Green New Deal or police and prison reform have gone much, much further to the left today, I would argue. And I don't actually necessarily have a problem with that. So your, your analogy of saying, oh, someone tripling the federal budget, that's an extreme position. Would that be considered like in the anti-moderation philosophy? I don't think so, because I the second piece of that sort of moderation idea that I was trying to talk about in the article is this idea of um, espousing, oh, of course, my boss is calling me. Um, great timing. Uh, <laughs> no worries, you can go but, ahead and take that. Yeah, let, but anyway, I'll, let me finish that thought in a second. So I'm Let's, sorry. Uh, Luke, why don't you jump in here? <laughs> yeah, well, at, at risk of, uh, of, of usurping some of Paul's thoughts, I think Paul, uh, in that excellent piece at Aereo, which, by the way, full disclosure, uh, I, uh, I, I was very, very glad that he got into Aereo and very uh, uh, dissatisfied that I could not put it at Braver Angels Media because it was just such a wonderful piece, right? Um, but I think the way Paul looks at moderation um, as something that, uh, that has different types, right? There are different ways to be moderate. I think that's something that you can apply as a political heuristic uh, to pretty much any political ideology and maybe even any uh, political uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of kind of program to some degree, right? So the notion that it's possible to be moderate on a political spectrum, right? It's possible to be somewhere in the vague center between the more concentrated extremes, but that it's also possible to be moderate in a way that is uh, uh, civil and open-minded, even if you happen to be on one of the far sides of the extremes, right? Um, I think that tension is something that that goes into a lot of civil discourse and a lot of uh, bipartisan-focused organizations. And one of the things that a lot of the best of these organizations have worked on is um, trying to identify what kind of moderation or what kind of bipartisanship or what kind of, you know, frankly, this applies what kind of conservatism are you talking about? What kind of mm-hmm. liberalism are you talking about? Is it something that there's like an ideological or a policy 10 point checklist that can define what you're thinking about? Or is it a dispensation and a general kind of cultural backdrop you're looking at? And uh, by the way, I, I, I mentioned that there's this like a like like spectrum based version versus the temperament-based version, mm-hmm. not to say either of them is superior to the other, right? Like, um, uh, and Paul, I'm sure you have better examples of this than, uh, than I can come up with at the moment, but I think it's easily possible for you to have somebody who is very genuinely moderate in a temperamental sense, 
who is close to useless in an actual policy or political sense, right? And I think it's also possible to have somebody who is a very uh, political uh, centrist, moderate, very technocratic, maybe very like splits the difference evenly between the standard conservative and liberal positions and is just a flaming kind of immoderate jerk in terms of how they display it, right? Um, so, so the fact that you can be moderate dispositionally versus moderate policy-wise does not mean that either of those is particularly good or particularly bad. It's sure. just those are different ways. And again, I think, um, and Paul as a progressive and myself as a conservative, these are things that w- within our own kind of uh, ideological communities and coalitions are things that we observe among our own friends and mm-hmm. our own fellow travelers too, you know, so... Got it. Um, yeah, so uh, now back to you, Paul. <laughs> uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was uh, uh, regarding your characterization of an increasing uh, intolerance of dissent, meaning that in progressive circles you were talking about, um, not to say this isn't a problem in conservative, but you were, since you're on the left, you're talking about the left. Uh, there is uh, more ideological conformity and a lack of tolerance for different views. Uh, one of the things that I've, I, I would agree with that first off, but one of the things that I've wondered about is how this has played out. Um, and I guess the past few decades in American history, because uh, one observation that Greg Lukianoff has made is that it's actually um, the case that like in the nineties, we were seeing sort of this growing political correctness. And then it kind of went away for a bit. Um, and now it's, it's getting worse again. Uh, would you agree with that? And then, uh, if so, how does that, uh, tell us about how to combat intolerance of dissent? That was a long question. Hopefully that made sense. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I got it. Um, I mean, I think, I think that there are certainly ebbs and flows and how the sort of political correctness pieces has played out. And it sounds like it's something where from what I've seen it, it certainly is manifested. And the reason I guess I, I wrote that piece to begin with was I think there's already a lot of literature and a lot of conversation already going on, at least in left-leaning circles about how intolerant the right has become and how intolerant mm-hmm. conservatives mm-hmm. have become. And so I think there's ample, ample literature to describe, you know, the, the classic path of the, the YouTuber who goes down a rabbit hole and went from, I just wanted to watch a video about cats to, I didn't realize that, you know, 9-11 was an inside job to something much more nefarious. But you know, on the left, in terms of political correctness and how that's played out, um, I think the way I think about this, and maybe this is going to get a little convoluted and hopefully will answer your question, is that I think there are sort of these wings that sort of there's an elite polarization going on, whether it's sort of cultural elites, political elites, and groups mm. that kind of have lots of sway and lots of capital in shaping these debates and conversations. And so I think most people actually are not as, you know, there's to, to borrow a term from the hidden tribes, kind of the exhausted majority, sort of the group in the middle that's kind of like, oh, we're tired about this. We don't want to deal with this anymore. But on the left elites and this kind of small, maybe you could call them um, progressive activists, or I think that's the term that's used in the report. But I think that kind of generally fits the, the general tenor of the conversation mm-hmm. is that there is sort of a discourse that is hammered home as being acceptable. And I think when political correctness in the 90s was happening, I think that it was initially about you know, building a bigger umbrella, or not a bigger umbrella, bigger sort of um, tent for people to fit under and trying to say, how do we try to design and, and ensure that there's inclusivity, right? How do we make sure that folks who have traditionally been kind of discarded or not included, how do we bring them in to like hear what they have to say about this? And I think that that 
that spirit is certainly correct. But I think it also, there was a sort of potential path of political correctness that when it kind of died down and we got distracted in the early 2000s, has started to come back up as sort of being in this kind of, it's, it's less concerned about policy or ideology. And I think it's more concerned about making sure that there are very, very clear parameters for what's acceptable and what's not acceptable okay. in that space. And so um, to get back to your, I think your original question, which I actually, but, why, why don't you repeat it again? So I make sure yeah, bas basically, how does that history inform us about how we deal with the present? Gotcha, gotcha. Um, that's a great question. I mean, part of me thinks that, you know, things were getting extremely polarized and, and intense, maybe in the 90s, if that's the case. And I guess I confess I've not researched that period of sure. history as much. But I also think there was sort of a, you know, external event there that shifted a lot of things with 9-11. Mm -hmm. And I think that even if there was rising polarization, I think there was this, this collective, it was, you know, we were having kind of an intense internal debate as a country, and then there was an external shock that kind of snapped us out of it for a good chunk of time. And not to say that polarization didn't continue, it certainly did. And I think it became centered around questions that are really valid around things like the Patriot Act or overseas, you know, interventions and thinking about what the meaning of the war on terror was. But I also think that, um, you know, based on that and based on that kind of history of how that was sort of a, I guess as a progressive, I would argue that was sort of a negative reframing and got us away from polarization, but in a way that was let's rally around the flag and make sure that we're supporting our troops and everything. And I don't, you know, Luke can obviously disagree with me on this, but I think that when you kind of go towards that path, it, it, it kind of squashes a little bit of maybe like that political correctness or the feeling of like we're having these intense, I guess they're really cultural debates. Um, but I also think there's better, there's more exciting patriotic ways of unifying people that don't necessarily require the war machine to go active again, which is kind of what, what happened there. Like, you know, like in a hypothetical world, if there was, let's just say, this is going to sound kind of random, but if there was, you know, as we have the one of the few areas of bipartisan consensus is our is our response to China right now, right? Our China policy. If there was to be a war between China and the United States or something that escalated to that point, I I kind of wonder what the world of polarization would look like. And I don't want to use that's like the negative glass half empty look at what it could be. I think Brave Angels and other groups are trying to say, how do we build a collective sort of fabric of patriotism? And diversity and understanding that actually builds back a sense of like who Americans are and how we can unify together as one people that gets away from these sort of elites that are bickering back and forth about what is defined as a polarizing issue or not. Um, so yeah, there's a little bit of a convoluted response, but I think that there, rather than, let me reframe it this way, rather than having an external shock that would cause us to kind of squash a little bit of our polarization. And I guess you could argue that COVID-19 was a little bit of that. I'd rather see an internal uh, focus from the citizenry to build up a sense of like who we are as a people and really fight for like crossing those boundaries and then being able to respond directly to that sort of elite polarization. Yeah, I think I think that's a good um, objective. And I think uh, both of your affiliation with Braver Angels, you know, indicates that you would support that on the same time. At the same time, I would say that just seems so much more difficult, right, than the, than the external uh, shock to the system or rally around the flag or anything else that causes us to unite because it's very simple. Whereas the more, I guess, uh, enlightened, um, temp uh, moderate temperament sort of view to things is just, it takes a lot of, a lot of work on, on yourself and in the community as a whole. Would you agree? 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's an endless project, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's why in the, in the bridging space, if you want to call it that, there are the folks who, the braver angels of the world that are working on sort of connecting people to people. And then, you know, where code is based, I work at a place called the Open Gov Hub, and we have a lot of groups more focused on structural institutional reforms, right? So it's less about, let's get Luke and I in a room to become friends and chat about issues of interest. It's more about how do we implement a democratic reform that we think will actually tackle some of the the perverse incentives that a lot of our politicians may have to keep us divided or, or engage in this highly divisive rhetoric. So, but I, I mean, I'm happy to be on the citizen building side. Yes, it is a sloppy, difficult, messy project, but I also think that um, it has certainly granted me a greater sense of purpose and meaning and thinking about my identities in America and when it's easy to just, you know, it's comfortable and it feels good to get in your camp and yell at the other side, but it, to get into the space of like, oh, wow, I just had a long conversation with a conservative, um, which, which is pretty rare, I think really causes you to rethink and, and reshift how you think about being an American, your own views. And yeah, so. Great. So now because of uh, scheduling issues, we're going to do sort of the joint interview and then uh, do a one-on-one with Luke towards the end. Great. And this will be a little more freewheeling since uh, Paul, as you mentioned, um, you and Luke have known each other for a while um, and your Braver Angels uh, experience should give you plenty of uh, experience to draw on when discussing different things. But um, I guess first uh, question to both of you, uh, before the we started recording, we talked to um, an email about um, political epistemology and its relationship to polarization. Uh, epistemology is one of my favorite words. <laughs> um, how do you know what you know? So I guess if uh, each of you could just uh, talk about your, basically how you approach political epistemology for yourself and um, what your relationship with uh, the other has, how that, how that's influenced it. Paul, do you want to start this or do you want me to start this? Why don't you kick it off, Luke? I'm curious to hear about your, your view before I share mine. Sure. Okay. So I'll, uh, well, uh, with something as, uh, as um, simple and straightforward as how we know what we know, I will try to be as, uh, as uh, 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 concise as possible. But long story short, um, I think uh, the best, the, 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 the easiest way I can describe the way that I've been thinking about uh, what is real in politics and stuff is trying to come to some balance between uh, the objectivist tradition in historiography, on the one hand, um, people say, uh, various historians have said, uh, write as though you are already dead, right? Don't try to write to your own time, try to write to the ages. And I think to some degree, looking at, uh, at political events of your own time uh, and trying to step a little bit back from them, right? And trying to look at them in the broader flow of society and the broader flow of history, um, rather than, uh, than doing what we are all tempted to do, what we always do, uh, is, uh, is find our own place in them, right? But try to take a, a little bit of a step back in a way that doesn't particularly uh, make you feel good or look good, but just is the way that you can imagine future historians thinking about it. I think that that's one thing. I think that's one key component to, uh, to how I've tried to uh, look, at, look at stuff, right? On the other hand, um, and I think this is probably the harder thing to learn and something that I've been, um, I've spent a lot more time uh, trying to uh, get away from the, the, uh, the temptations against it, 
is um, is what has been referred to both positively and negatively as both sidesism, right? Um, both sidesism is usually used as a pejorative in terms of like, oh, how could you possibly have moral equivalents with fascists or with Maoists or whoever anybody is particularly uh, trying to slander at any particular given point, right? Um, but the more I think about um, a lot of our contemporary issues, the more I look at the way there's shockingly similar um, outrage cycles and, uh, and fact and truth cycles, I think, um, in terms of how public discourse in any particular media system uh, goes on any particular hot button issue, the more it seems to me that having a, a, a sense that, yeah, there are lived experiences that come to completely polar opposite views on a lot of big things, right? Um, in America, that's basically red versus blue, but there's also big divides across that in terms of class, especially in terms of race, especially in terms of uh, urban geography that doesn't necessarily go just red, blue, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you can brainwash yourself and if you can cultivate in yourself the habit of, uh, of even if you don't automatically think in terms of both sidesism, if you can like discipline yourself to uh, have both sides of them as a pressure as you judge things, right? I found that that has, um, I, I hope it has made me a little bit less of a hack than I normally am. Okay. Um, but I think it also has helped me to uh, get a little bit more inside the, the heads of people who I disagree with on most things, right? Not necessarily in a way that I think I can do them full justice, but in a way that things make more sense, right? And so just purely at the level of, um, of strategy and of analysis and of thinking about like the broadest contours of polarization, um, just remembering that you're that you're going to die someday, right? So like what you think right now is not necessarily the most important thing. What history thinks about whatever's happening is the most important thing, right? And then also realizing that history is made not by one crusading, conquering, victorious side or one moral arc of history moving forward, but that there is a whole plural hearth of all kinds of ways of looking at things and trying to do at least a little justice to each of them, right? Um, that I think is, is something that's really hard to do. And even if you try to do it, you're probably not going to do it very well. I don't do it very well. Um, but I think in terms of like where to aspire, that to my mind is the right way to look at political epistemology. So. Got it. Paul? That's a hard out to follow. I probably should have gone first. Um, <laughs> But no, I, I think I think Luke's point is is really really well taken, and I guess my own sort of path to political epistemology is a little bit more, um, yeah, it, it follows sort of a reactive arc, and one that I'm now I think trying to craft out a little more proactively myself. So less of being accepting and, and of what it is, and following the sort of path of least resistance, and now thinking a little more strategically about what it means to be, yeah, situate as Luke mentioned, situate myself in the place of history and other movements, but also just genuinely thinking about who am I as an individual? What do I believe and how do I square that within the larger society? And I think when I say reactive, a lot of my, my own upbringing was very much in a liberal progressive context. And I think I kind of learned, and yeah, I would say something like 9-11 was a defining moment for me. I was in high school when it happened and sort of where I started to kind of sink my teeth into different political ideologies and think about what it means to read history, what it means to understand uh, movements. And I think it was really through that you know, it led to a curiosity. And yes, it was reactive in the sense I still reacted to 9-11. I embraced what my family generally thought about things and I kind of followed that path. 
Um, but it also spurred a lot of curiosity to me. And I think that curiosity is kind of the root of my progressive sort of ideology and how I've sort of rooted and reared around for different things I want to know and learn about. And, and again, also a sense of not wanting to engage in too much groupthink. I think it's easy to get into groupthink settings, but um, so that curiosity led me to, you know, want to cross paths and want to learn from other cultures, people, places. I mean, I worked for a while in the travel industry, traveled around quite a bit myself, um, didn't really see myself living long-term in the United States. I thought about living somewhere else overseas, but I think wherever I went, I was kind of constantly iterating and changing how I thought about my own political ideology through my interactions and experiences representing Americans overseas, right? I think it's it's a weird thing to say that, but I think when you see yourself as sort of a, you know, I guess a citizen diplomat or someone who's in that space of constantly explaining what it means to be American and why you believe these views, you you can get really, really deep and really, really quickly. And so that was sort of like the initial root of how I thought about things. And I was mostly, you know, when you're in the traveling space and you start to realize that there's a lot more outside your borders than what you think, and it's not all terrifying and scary as, you know, the first and second Bush administration terms might have you think. Um, I started getting a little more curious, but then I think the other, um, in my own sense, I, I, I think some of that had kind of led me to a curiosity about, yeah, the moral foundations of how we feel about things, how we approach other sides. And that happened a little bit more to me when I was in grad school and also even a little bit before that. And it was kind of a combination of an interest in spirituality, interest in divinity, interest in like those moral pieces, and then blending that with sort of what I was seeing in grad school. So what were, we were, what were you uh, getting your degree in? So it was, I was down at the LBJ school at UT Austin, but I was studying public policy, okay. um, global policy studies. But I started my first semester was, you know, fall 2016. And that was also interesting time to be starting grad school in sort of evidence-based data-driven public policy. And then, you know, Donald Trump won the presidency and it kind of sent shockwaves out through all my classmates who didn't really know how to think about that. And I think that I still was rooted in a curiosity to find out more. So my immediate reaction was a little bit of despondency, but also of what helped, what happened? Like, well, how do we miss this? I got to talk to people. I'm sure it's also part of the reason, Stephen, you're even having this podcast. You just, mm -hmm. these questions of curiosity and what happened are kind of what I'm really interested in. And so I guess I kind of followed that, but then I became more proactive and less reactive, I guess, when I started actually making inroads to organizations that were working on depolarization, talking to folks on the other side, thinking more strategically about what it is I believed and how I felt about um, what I considered to be right and what I considered to be wrong. And it kind of just reshaped the way I thought about truth, the way I thought about um, facts, even to some degree. And so, so I guess like, as I've been, as I'm describing this, I, I think Luke said, Luke's point about history is really valid. Um, I think mine's a little bit more embedded in my own experiences and traveling and thinking about what it means to be an American. But um, these sort of massive rupture points have been really, really definitive in helping me think about how do I take these values of curiosity and community and how do I apply them when there's a shock to the system, like they're, like, or a perceived shock to the system. So, yeah. Got it. Um, I'm going to throw my own take on epistemology out and see what you guys think of it. Uh, basically, I, I think of myself as a moderate conservative, and I think one of the points that I believe conservatives make correctly, uh, I have a hard time seeing how it could be wrong, is that there are trade-offs to almost everything, um, especially trade-offs to policy decisions. And that's, I think that can be one route to um, depolarization is 
saying, if especially if we can agree there are trade-offs, okay, here's where you draw the line, here's where I draw the line, whether it be the tax rate or um, different regulations, their pros and cons, approach to climate change, et cetera, but that there are trade-offs and that we are um, trying our best to form policies uh, that address them and not just policies. Uh, there are trade-offs in how you design a democracy, right? There's trade-offs in almost everything with extremely complex systems. So that's how I think about it. Um, what's your take on that? Um, either Luke or Paul. I'm especially here, curious to hear Paul though, because Luke was nodding vigorously. <laughs> I, f- I fully agree in the trade-off philosophy. And that's one, I, w- I wouldn't describe myself as a utilitarian, but I'm certainly... Um, you can't go to public policy school and not believe in trade-offs, I don't think. And this mm-hmm. is something that was concerning to me, hearing friends who were still in the LBJ school describe experiences where, you know, any kind of policy discussion that dis- discussed pros and cons, how you're going to allocate this limited pot of money to apply to a different program that didn't somehow help everyone perfectly or wasn't embracing social justice. I was like, well, I hate to say, but public policy is about saying we have limited funds and limited resources. Where do we prioritize these and how do we make those policy decisions? And so I think that I'm actually I'm not going to be the the, the progressive person who says that's a ridiculous idea. It's only rights based. That's full stop. We can't talk about, you know, generally how we think about these decisions. I'm I, I think that's actually been a path towards having more realistic conversations with some of my fellow progressive activists who maybe when you say like, yeah, that's all fine and well. And I'll just give you an example. The For the People Act is a really good one. It's been in the news a lot. Obviously, Joe Manchin just kind of recently shut it down. Um, I've read through most of that act, part, partly because of my work at Code, and I was just interesting about it. And it makes a ton of sense why even on the liberal side, a lot of local voting election officials would have a really hard time implementing it. It's unfunded. It provides a one-size-fits-all approach rather than sort of a nuanced data-driven approach based on county or state or just general situation. And I think that those kinds of questions that are those trade-off-based conversations about, well, okay, let's send this back. How do we reframe this thing that has a generally positive thrust, but clearly also has some, some liberal gimmies and some things that just don't quite jive with different counties? How do you have a nuanced conversation about it? But instead, when you apply a, a one-size-fits-all reporting or ideological approach it's oh my god how could the republicans be squashing voting rights end of story and that's not a fair assessment of what's going on i mean i think policy intends to complexify these conversations and they should be complexified and i think that it's not fun and it's not like i'm I'm going out and i'm screaming about something but that's the only way it's going to happen so i actually i would i would agree with your approach pretty much I think another thing, too, is a a lot of uh, folks who think about trade-offs specifically in uh, in public policy, right, Mm -hmm. um, are very good at assessing uh, material things and are very good at assessing logistical things and uh, the different political relationships between the different actors involved. Um, But at some level, I think that is uh, uh, a real way, a, re- a real place where, the, where there are trade-offs. But I think those trade-offs themselves in terms of like, I don't know, efficiency versus fairness um, and, uh, and local, con- local ad- adaptability versus central uh, uh, consistency and, and all those kinds of things that everybody who, who has an MPP and, uh, and works in this field uh, assesses on a day-to-day basis. I think those, are, those exist on their own and they're, they're very important to look at. But they also kind of reflect broader questions of principle as well, too. And as you look at the broader questions of principle, um, I think that can begin to lead one towards a conclusion that I 
don't know how deeply I've accepted, but I always find it really fascinating and compelling that um, all, all the trade-offs at a, at a technocratic or managerial level are in some sense uh, fundamental political questions as well, right? Uh, in, in the sense of, uh, of like, what is the value that we have to make prominent here? Is it freedom? Is it justice? Is it security? Is it equality? And that sounds kind of abstract in, in some sense, but I, when it comes down to, um, say, technocratic questions revolving around medical triage in a pandemic that's moving really fast and nobody has a full sense of how many people are actually dying every day, right? And, uh, and you have to entrust local bureaucrats to make decisions and how do you give them the right guidance for their community? Should you give them the right guidance uh, or should you trust them? All that kind of stuff. Um, at some level, things that are are, uh, are are organization management stuff in the political and policy process winds up reflecting deeper questions of what politics is, and being able to be humble about that, right? Being able to uh, to to not see a nefarious uh, world destroyer behind everybody who does a technocratic decision you disagree with, but also being able to see them. I mean, even if they are a world destroyer, they're also uh, somebody in a bureaucratic job trying to do their job, right? Um, this is a, 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 an area of question that I have actually found that the weirdos who are like basically excommunicated from the polite mainstream of American discourse usually have a deeper... Um, a deeper sense of these kinds of trade-offs than most of us in the broad center do. Um, people like, like a serious classical Marxists, people like anarchists, and on the right, uh, people who are more in the, uh, the Catholic integralist, uh, traditionalist schools of thought, um, because I feel like they have a sense of the, uh, the values versus uh, institutions uh, questions that a lot of us in the broadly liberal conservative center just kind of take for granted because of the uh, the massive consensus that has existed on a lot of key issues in American government. And for what for my money, one of the best things about um, open and curious civil discourse, Paul, to your point about curiosity, is that it's possible to learn from the uh, the weirdo illiberals and, uh, and and find the real insights and wisdom that they bring for us understanding our own order, maybe even take some useful things from that as we think about it, um, without necessarily that uh, betraying our own commitments to the American constitutional system itself, you know, so. Cool. Um, Paul, I wanted to follow up on your point about HR1, because this was something that I found very uh interesting and a little disheartening from my perspective on that bill, which if I recall correctly, there was a lot of federal control in it. And especially given that we had just seen, in my opinion, uh, an, an attempt by the president to um, circumvent the results of a national election, I could easily see that um, if it had passed it backfiring in the future, whether from an authoritarian uh, on the left or the right. Uh, and it, 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 I was a little flabbergasted, honestly. I, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised, but uh, seeing the lack of ability, in my opinion, of the crafters of that bill to think more than literally immediately with, with the Biden administration, um, and also, in my opinion, have a, you know, this would be a conservative point, but a, a wariness of federal power um, was something that I was um, just... Well, a little disheartened by, a little confused by. Um, but would you 
agree or disagree there? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point and one that I, I hadn't quite thought about, right? And I guess if I were to use my liberal response to your conservative response about being mm-hmm. afraid of federal power, obviously the left response is, you know, the state's rights issue also is a quick and easy excuse for whether it's, you know, state-sponsored uh, voting discrimination mm-hmm. or just different types of acts, right? So, I mean, that I think there's sort of this liberal tradition on the left to say like, oh, like, you know, the state's rights is often a cloak or a disguise for something a little bit much more malicious that allows states to kind of still command these things. Whether I, I don't really, you know, I think over time, there's valid arguments on the on the right about federal power and exertion. And I think this is something that is, I think a little bit of just maybe a strategic or tactical misstep on the left that we often think that by assuming that, okay, more federal power to ensure that there's less discrimination, or we ensure that like states are complying with these new data requirements or reporting requirements, or we readjust, you know, how different counties that have prison populations, for example, how much voting capacity they get. Um, The the assumption there, I think, is that like that naturally by implementing this in fairness in elections, that it will, and I don't think anyone on the left would admit this, but it's probably just like lend Democrats more of a long-term advantage. But obviously, and this is just a general critique. I have a lot of a lot of policies, whether it was like court stacking, which I was noticing was starting to come up quite a bit in the Supreme Court. You know, last year there was a lot of chatter on the left about adding more justices, and which I don't think we've even tried since the New Deal. I'm pretty sure, but in any case, um, it just it felt like these were sort of adjustments and long term shifts that were supposed to rectify uh, power imbalances, but also assuming that there would be then kind of democratic power to balance them out versus like if any one smart or strategic player came in and realized that they could, you know, whip up a frenzy about something or gain access to those levers of power that, yeah, of course, you're going to start to see abuses happening. And I, I think for me, my critique of HR one was probably more on the, there seemed like there were a lot of it's sort of like the Green New Deal, right? It was like pitched and framed as this thing that was all about like climate change, sustainability. But the more a closer read of it kind of belied all of these just sort of um, democratic wish list items that have been on there for a long time that didn't really seem like they were kind of tossed in as afterthoughts. And so I kind of saw HR1 as, you know, it's that shot across the bow of like, this is what we believe in. But I, immediately read it, it was like, oh yeah, this will get nowhere. Like, I don't know why this is being said. Um, but I also hadn't really, I, I don't think that sometimes we fully on the, even on the left think about um, fully through those consequences or those changes that we're suggesting we implement. And then what could possibly happen if there was a little bit of a shift of power or if that, you know, it's okay for us because it's benefiting us, but like, what are the consequences for other populations that maybe are not quite on our side? So yeah all right um now for part three uh so luke i guess first i would uh like you to tell me about being the publius fellow for public discourse at braver angels uh, i understand that involves running america's public forum program uh as so if you could tell me about that and uh any of the other responsibilities you have Sure thing. Yeah. So uh, long story short, uh, my uh, my formal role now is the uh, Publius Fellow for Public Discourse at Braver Angels. Uh, I am the director of Braver Angels' main uh, public speaker event series, America's Public Forum. And then I write a bunch of the resolutions for the Braver Angels debates team. And I do a lot of editing and uh, message 
uh, crafting work for Braver Angels Media. So uh, I am one of the uh, the, uh, the folks inside the Braver Angels um, uh, national team that does uh, does a lot of our public facing kind of uh, uh, questions of conversation and questions of uh, what what are the, the the topics, what are the ways we're framing these topics, and how are we going to uh, bring in a mix of both expert and scholarly and journalistic voices on the one hand, but also the genuinely grassroots and genuinely depolarized and depolarizing. Uh, conversations that our uh, our membership has been uh, been working on and workshopping through for years and years, right? Um, so uh, so I just uh, hold, uh, run a couple of uh, programs there, aside from a half a dozen other odd jobs around the organization. I actually had been a uh, a um, over glorified volunteer for the org for about four years before I okay. uh, got hired on. And uh, when I got hired on, it just has been a, a good opportunity to go uh, spend even more time doing. This kind of work. So um, I can tell you, so, or uh, what's what, what more background stuff would be helpful though? Um, let's see. I guess if you could uh, explain what America's Public Forum program is um, and how often you I, I have public forums, uh, what they're like, who can join, et cetera. Yeah, sure. Well, so uh, so the America's Public Forum again is uh, Braver Angels' main um, public speaker event series. Actually, uh, a couple hours after this call, uh, I am uh, going to be hosting uh, another America's Public Forum event uh, with the National Institute for Civil Discourse on a book called "The Ubiquitous Presidency on Social Media and the Presidency." And so, uh, long story short, the 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 basic philosophy of the APF is to uh, to be a, uh, a way to bridge the, um, the world of grassroots, workshop-based, red-blue depolarization world and uh, members of Braver Angels uh, in our alliances around the country and people who subscribe to it um, and that general kind of like uh, kind of demographic there, right? Uh, bring mm -hmm. that work and the spirit that, that uh, we do, and I'm happy to talk more about Braver Angels broadly, um, to the work uh, and the world of uh, of a higher end, really honest, really insightful scholars and journalists and activists and thinkers who spend most of their time, not necessarily in grassroots work and not necessarily in civil discourse work, but who do spend their time thinking really deeply about crucial problems uh, of relevance to depolarization. Sometimes that means people who look at uh, political parties and partisanship. Sometimes that means people who are really deep on the ground as activists fighting for various causes. Sometimes that means uh, journalists uh, who have done commentary on, uh, on things related to polarization. And, uh, and so it's been, it's been a lot of fun, uh, fun doing it because um, the, the main kinds of uh, events that Braver Angels is, uh, is, uh, is very good at and famous for are our workshops and our debates, right? Uh, the main value add Braver Angels has ever had in its, uh, in its programming has been citizen to citizen, honest conversation mm -hmm. and the, uh, the depolarization that can come out of that. And a probably better uh, red-blue ratio, I think, than uh, is often expected in the, uh, in, in the world of civil discourse, right? Okay. One of the, uh, the general complaints a lot of people have about civil discourse world is it's all liberals talking to each other, right? And so mm -hmm. Braver Angels has made a key point of, uh, of being sure to bring in reds and uh, increasingly to bring in uh, people from all communities that don't normally show up to this kind of thing uh, just because of the, the 
uh, the the framing, right? It's a, it's a largely upper middle class thing, right? So um, so so we've been doing a lot of that work, and that's been good. That's been meaningful. That informs all of our thought and all of our uh, our practice in those. And the America's Public Forum series has been just a way to uh, integrate that kind of work uh, with the kinds of conversations that. Um, that folks in Washington, D.C., folks in the American University research system, folks in journalism uh, do as well and uh, make for some interesting kind of conversations there. And uh, I just run those events. Those happen about roughly weekly, um, sometimes a little bit more frequently than that, sometimes a little less frequently. Um, we are uh, currently doing them on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and if you uh, follow Braver Angels' newsletter, you will get a uh, an update on whenever there's a new one coming up. So, awesome! Yeah, all that detail was very helpful. It kind of is interesting to note the sort of expanded vision. Um, and I also think that that it's really important to occasionally ground your political experience as sort of a your everyday citizen, not super involved with the more sort of detailed um, work that goes on in DC. Uh, and and also vice versa. <laughs> I don't know how much uh, this, you, the that form provides, but having the sort of interaction with people who are in an office in DC every day with, you know, citizens around the country. Well, you know, it's uh, it's really interesting because I've, I've found that um, a lot of the, um, not as much people in the think tank circuit, but mm-hmm. uh, people in the journalism circuit on the one hand, and then people in uh, who, who work uh, uh, work with congressmen on the other hand in, in various kind of uh, spots there, um, have come to us after, the, uh, after these events and been like, wow, this is more grassroots engagement than I've done in a long time. This is great. Can we do more of this? Right. And uh, and I don't know. It's um, obviously it's it's nice to be able to bring like grassroots folks uh, to uh, uh, to have access to the makers of opinion and the advancers of knowledge. Right. That's good on its own front. But I don't know. The the, the biggest thing that has uh, always surprised me about bridge building work um, in the years that I've been involved in it is that even when people don't really think it's worth anything going into it, most of the time as they come out of it, they realize, oh, you know, there's uh, there's something to this and maybe we should do it more often. Yep. So cool. All right. So now I'm going to shift for and give you a chance to talk more about your own personal views. Uh, we had discussed previously emailing. I've kind of had a range of people on the podcast, definitely some who identify as conservative or liberal and some who for journalistic reasons um, don't really identify any which way. Uh, but I hadn't really had any strong uh, pro-Trump views on the program. So I guess uh, I, I'm going to quote what you said, which is, I'm pretty snarkily conservative and aligned intellectually with various pro-Trump types. Um, so if you could just tell me more about that. Yeah, well, uh, let me just uh, just say uh, first as well that um, I am a good conservative intellectual and like any good conservative intellectual, uh, the way I define myself is by defining myself against most other conservative intellectuals, right? Um, and so, uh, so I, uh, I think the best way to describe myself at this point is um, I'm a big fan of a lot of the policy ideas and general political directions and instincts of the folks who are calling themselves the new nationalists nowadays. Okay. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Oren Cass over at American Compass. I'm a big fan of Julius Krein over at American Affairs. I think the work that folks like them are doing and are working with uh, folks like Michael Lind and uh, and other uh, kind of um, long-term 
uh, thinkers who have been characterized as nationalists in the past. I think the work that they that they're trying to do in rethinking the economic orthodoxy of the GOP is some of the most important policy and journalism work being done right now. And I find it just really fascinating. And I uh, am, uh, am, am very, very deeply influenced in my own thinking on most policy stuff by that type. Now, in terms of politics, um, I think it, it's weird because I feel like I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm basically socially conservative. I uh, basically uh, fall in with a lot of the, um, the prejudices and uh, convictions and feelings of your run-of-the-mill like person who reads anywhere from First Things magazine to National Review magazine. But in terms of political style and uh, coalition building stuff, uh, I find the extreme left of the Republican Party, so Republican centrists who are not necessarily never Trumpers, but often wind up being never Trumpers, uh, folks like uh, some of the people at the Niskanen Center, um, a lot of, of American Enterprise Institute people, just like at a temperamental level and like a how you should do politics level, I find those guys to be the best um, best kind of models, right? So I'm I'm in a weird split. I uh, I once upon a time I worked for David Brooks as a uh, as a scheduling assistant, and uh, I don't think I. Uh, see eye to eye with David Brooks, my former, former boss on a lot of policy things specifically. But I do think like in terms of political temperament, he's influenced me a lot and I admire the kind of politics that he thinks uh, we ought to be building, right? So it's it's a weird spot. And and you talk to, uh, to conservative intellectuals, most of the time um, conservative intellectuals will, will say that they are either very hardcore one specific thing or are split between a couple uh, a couple of related things, but they know mm -hmm. what they're not, right? And so I know I'm not a libertarian. I'm not really uh, a MAGA kind of Trumpist kind of type. I don't say that I'm not those out of like a, a kind of superiority kind sure. of thing. It's just like- Just defining a, what you are. Yep. Yeah, yeah. At, at a level of how I interact in journalism world and the things I prefer to read, that's that's my take. Now that opens the question too, is like, does that matter? You know, um, And I mean, uh, at- uh, uh, I'm not running for office or anything, right? And I'm not uh, uh, in any uh, major, I mean, I, I work in depolarization world, not in conservative world. So there's some level in which like what kind of conservative I am doesn't really matter pragmatically. That being said, um, it's interesting being a minority within your own coalition, as I think pretty much every conservative who thinks deeply about what it means to be their own kind of conservative is, right? Because it, it gives you a, uh, a deeper sense, number one, of what you stand for and, uh, and uh, in some senses gives you a, a more bridges to the other side and more bridges even to different parts of your own side. Uh, but it also um, is a kind of, kind of makes you realize that all of our political identities are constructed in time, right? Um, as we ourselves grow and as the political environment around us changes, um, we're, we're constantly thinking on and maybe sometimes renegotiating our values and loyalties as, uh, as things change, you know, and I don't necessarily think that that makes somebody unideological, but I think it can definitely do a lot of good in helping you think about the nature of ideology, right, which uh, in these Twitter driven times is something that I think is uh, incredibly important. So, got it. Uh, so, I was wondering if you'd tell me a bit more about um, why you favor uh, Oren Cass's work and um, the American Compass Institute broadly, 
um, or is it just American Compass? I don't remember. Uh, American um, Compass and American Affairs are okay. the, the two. Got it. Yep. Yeah. So um, countering the economic orthodoxy, I guess if you could first define super briefly what you view that economic orthodoxy as and then how they counter it and why you like it. Yep. So uh, um, uh, at, at, a, at a conceptual level, the GOP uh, has since roughly the late 70s and through to the 2010s uh, been generally divided between different kinds of uh, free marketers and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, low, low tax types and um, uh, budget cutting types in terms of general economics, right? Um, that is, that's a caricature. That's, uh, there obviously have been dissenters from that. There obviously have sure. been very different types. A any libertarian will tell you that they're different from all the other, other libertarians, right? So there's, um, there's that. But in general, um, the American Republican Party has not been a party for government, has not been a party for uh, like uh, industrial policy, has not been a party for um, for, for arguments about uh, the proactive use of the state. The, the Reagan quip that, uh, uh, that uh, well, well the, the, Reagan, the Reagan dispensation that, uh, that in general, um, you need to get the government boot off of the entrepreneur, you need to get the government boot off of the people who make money, you need to let the money flow, and that's the way for a good economy, um, is, uh, is, is the general... Uh, kind of way of way the GOP has has thought about economics for a long time, and for what it's worth, I grew up in it, and uh, I, I don't entirely disagree with it. I I mean I, uh, I I've rejected bits and pieces of it, but I think there's still lots of wisdom in a lot of the classical economic theory of of Republican politics. Um, I think there are specific things that happened in the uh, in the 1990s through the 2000s, things like the ongoing development of the international trading system, things like uh, 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 the, uh, the loosening of the American labor market on various fronts, and especially things like the, uh, the complexification of American industry, right? That, uh, that have not been good for most of American, um, number one, most Americans on the one hand, and number two, for American, uh, American political capacity to act on the international stage and also even to shape its own uh, domestic destiny on the other hand. Um, I identify very, very, very strongly with uh, what is called the Hamiltonian tradition in economics, right? Um, which is, uh, which, which uh, depending on who you read on it, uh, basically goes from the Federalists through the Whigs, through the Lincoln Republicans, through the McK McKinley Republicans, and then uh, in some sense, it continues through the FDR New Deal Democrats. In other senses, it continues through the Rockefeller and Eisenhower Republicans, right? Um, which is a, uh, a, a kind of public-private look at economics uh, that doesn't look at, uh, at the state as something that uh, is inherently an oppressor or as is inherently a, something that uh, stifles economic activity, but instead looks at the state as something that stabilizes and sets a, uh, a, a better and more strategically oriented tone for national economics, um, but also is able to use that power to various ends, be those strategic and military ends or be those uh, social reformation ends and that kind of thing. And um, I think there are very good reasons why the conservative movement 
grew up in opposition to that in the 50s and 60s. Um, but to my mind, I think uh, the, the those reasons, um, I'm not sure I would have supported them at that time, and I definitely don't support them at this time. And so, uh, so the kind of policy arguments that Oren Cass and Julius Krein talk about, uh, rejuvenating industrial policy for strategic sector industries, right? Um, looking at things like how fast we got the COVID-19 vaccine set up as examples of what public-private and especially publicly-driven, government-driven research can do. Um, things about how do you reincorporate uh, unionism and a, uh, a better um, kind of labor policy into conservative economics, right? Those, in my opinion, I don't have a good answer on any of those specifically, but I'm really glad those questions are being asked because my personal kind of take on politics is, um, is that kind of nationhood, right? Um, and I don't see enterprise as being something that exists above American nationhood. I see it as something that exists within it, right? And so, uh, so to the degree that you could define the new nationalists on economics as people who are trying to rebalance uh, the state and the market on an even keel inside conservative thinking, I think that's uh, the, the stuff that I identify with. It's not the only useful thought going on in uh, conservative economics. I think, um, I actually think Tyler Cowen and, uh, and other types who call themselves state capacity libertarians, but are still very libertarian, are fascinating. And I learn from their work all the time. But um, in terms of where I fall, it's definitely in that, uh, that other side. So, Okay. I'm wondering if you happen to know of any really good uh, debates, either written or verbal, um, amongst conservatives on this topic, because this is something that I've just wondered about my own take on as well. And I think I might differ with you, but at the same time, I, I mostly am just sort of uninformed. And part of the reason I had this podcast is because I find it difficult to find uh, resources where someone's views are really interrogated, uh, by, especially by an expert. Um, and so, you know, ideally, maybe one of the things this podcast could be is, is host two experts on that topic, but uh, or any or any particular topic. But anyway, that was a long winded question. But basically, yeah. Can you point me to uh, some resources possibly on this topic? Yeah, no, I, well, I would absolutely love to chat with you about this at greater okay. length sometime too, possibly on this podcast, possibly yep. offline, just because this is a hugely fascinating thing. Mm -hmm. um, so so I. Uh, there's basically two places, I think, where there's some really interesting conversations going on. Number one, the Niskanen Center uh, is, um, and, and they know that they're going against the grain. So one of the things that they've been doing very well is convening people from different sites, right? Okay. Um, my friend, Jeff Cabaservice, just did a political strategy uh, 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 debate between a couple, um, I forget who specifically was on it, but there was, there, there were, uh, but 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 people people with different different views of what Republican moderates and what conservative centrists yep. need to be doing uh, for their own stuff. So uh, I'll I'll find it and send you the link, the link later. In terms of the the specifically economic stuff, obviously there's always going to be kind of hackish versions of this going on, right? Um, but at a really thoughtful level and at a really um, in depth level. Uh, I've found some of the conversations going on between Sam Hammond, who I believe is. Uh, has the fascinating space of being uh, at the Niskanen Center as a fellow, but also is uh, a contributing writer for American Compass, right? Okay. Um, conversations going on between him and uh, Michael Lind on the one hand and uh, Scott Winship on the other hand have been interesting to watch. Um, and then additionally, uh, I, 
American Compass uh, has hosted some debates as uh, some uh, some debates as well um, between people who have very different visions on antitrust policy in particular, but then also some things about uh, what exactly does good family policy look like? Actually, the debate I mentioned uh, with, I believe it was Sam Hammond and Scott Winship happened at, as an American Compass event. And so these are all very technocratic. These are all things where uh, you have these scholars who spend their time in their books, looking at numbers, uh, talking to each other about uh, the different principles behind their interpretations of the numbers versus other interpretations of the numbers. It's not something that's gonna get millions of views, but they are important conversations because um, at some level, uh, and you know how DC works as well as the rest of us, is that um, sometimes if you have the right amount of, the right small amount of the right people um, thinking about the right things and having the right conversations amongst each other um, in good faith and able to influence the powers that be, that's how policy change happens in DC in a, in a decade by decade sense, you know? And, uh, you know, I just will be interested to see, um, particularly among different kinds of conservatives, where there's an eventual kind of synthesis. Cause I think it's, I think that's the only, I don't think there's gonna be a, um, uh, a uh, I don't think any side is gonna win out over the others, right? And I also think it's probably unlikely that um, a, 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 a healthy factionalism is going to develop. I think as long as there's factionalism um, with uh, with uh, different ideological groupings, the, there will probably be um, a lot less clarity than there would be if there were a um, a, a deeper census, right? Uh, so I think I think eventually, and just given uh, various aspects of the two party system and various aspects of what it takes to whip up votes for elections. I think what's probably gonna happen is there's gonna be some weird Marco Rubio, Mike Lee synthesis uh, that integrates every weird part of the, of the Republican platforms and the, the different conservative types into a, a, a nonsensical but politically strong thing, right? Like if you look mm -hmm. at the deal, if you look at Reagan, Reaganomics, um, none of those pleased any of the ideological factions that composed them, but they all gave their ideological factions something, right? right. And so, so to, to my mind, it'll be interesting to see what that winds up looking like in the GOP and to the degree that, um, that factionalism does happen, to what degree, uh, for example, American Compass winds up working not only with libertarians and the Niskanen Center, but also maybe with socialists and maybe with the DSA, maybe with... Uh, Green New Deal types um, on some things while working with Niskanenites on other things. You know, um, I don't know. It's uh, we're living in a fascinating time for American ideological politics, and I think there will only be more and more interesting uh, nexuses coming up uh, in the coming decades. Which, as somebody working in depolarization and bridge building work, this is one of these opportunities that I'm like, this is a great time to be doing depolarization work because you can depolarize some of the most interesting people on the planet. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great place to end it. Luke Phillips, thanks for coming on. You might have a point. Thanks for having me, Stephen. That's all for today. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Please also take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and take care.